You can turn in your copy of God's Word, whether physical or digital, to Isaiah 42. We're taking a little break from the book of James, going to look at Isaiah 42. I was just feeling uh, James is heavy in the sense that there's a lot we are called to. And sometimes it's good to take a break and just reflect on our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We're looking at the first of what are four servant songs in Isaiah, direct prophecies of Christ the Messiah. So the first of these is Isaiah 42. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 9. Verses 1 to 9 of Isaiah 42. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would once again open our eyes, grant us the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, that we would truly behold the servant tonight, and in beholding him, become more like him, and be lifted up in praises to him, all for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may have noticed as we read that text, a repeated refrain, a repeated word that pops up again and again, and that was the theme of justice, of the establishment of justice in this world. And I think it's a tragedy that this term justice has been so um, taken over by its political connotations and what it seems to mean in the culture that we forget that this is an um, implicitly biblical idea, something we should all care deeply about. And so it's important that we understand that when we're talking about justice being established in the world, we know what it is we're talking about. And I think simply, the easiest way to understand the concept of justice is really making that which is wrong right. In Scripture, the same word is translated both justice and righteousness, because what is just is right. And when we think of injustice, we are simply thinking of what is wrong with this world. And if you think to yourself even now, what are the problems we evidently see in this world? What is going on? What is wrong with this world? We think quickly of many things that we would love to see eradicated from this world. We think of things like murder, immorality, abuse, poverty, adultery, 
lying, stealing, family breakdown, abortion, abandonment, betrayal, and many others. And don't you want to see these things made right? To see righteousness, that is justice, being done in the world. And in the book of Isaiah, God's people are frequently rebuked for the injustice in their land, their mistreatment of one another, their corruption and selfishness. Right at the beginning of the book, in Isaiah 1.16, God calls to the people saying, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice and correct oppression. And so we desire the same things, that evil would be done away with, that good would be established. We do want justice to be established in the world. However, this is not as simple of a task as it may seem, because there's a deeper root at the heart of injustice and a deeper issue that is always overlooked by godless societies. And that is, the root issue at the heart of injustice is that of idolatry. Idolatry and injustice always go together. And idolatry was Israel's most prominent sin, one they're rebuked for again and again. They're going to idols. And the external problems of injustice always result from internal problems of idolatry. Consider even physical idol worship, right? In Israel, we know there was times when they were worshiping a molten god Molech. They worshipped him by images, but in order to please him, in order to accommodate this idol, they committed abominable injustices, even like child sacrifice. Their idolatry led to injustice. And in a similar way, perhaps an idolatrous love of wealth, it creates and leads to the injustice of oppressing workers, of falsifying documents, of seeking to cheat the system, to lie and manipulate. An idolatrous desire for sexual pleasure leads to the injustices of immorality and abuse. These idolatrous desires lead to injustices. And therefore, the great problem with humanity, the great wrong in this world, is not, first of all, their unrighteous acts, but their unrighteous hearts. And before what's wrong with the world can be made right, what's wrong with us needs to be made right. We need to be delivered of our injustice-inducing idolatry. And we can't do this ourselves. We need a radical renovation that strikes to our very hearts. We need God to come to us, to deliver us of our blindness and bondage to idolatry. And what I want us to see in our text tonight is that our great and compassionate God has seen our need, And he's made provision for our deliverance from idolatry and injustice in this person of the servant. Tonight we want to simply behold the servant, to meditate on his person and work, his mission and character, that our hearts might be lifted up in praise and in adoration to our God who has made such abundant provision for his people. Amen. So let's begin considering who is this servant. Well, I won't leave you in suspense. The servant is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is the first of four servant songs in Isaiah, four passages which describe the ministry of this special, ideal servant who helps fulfill God's purposes for Israel and the whole world. 
And this passage in Isaiah 42 is explicitly applied to the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 12. Matthew quotes this as being fulfilled in Christ. And so we have um, a biblical stamp of approval to see Jesus in the figure of the servant. And really, this text is coming to an exiled Israel, a people that are away from their land. And God is writing to them through Isaiah to encourage them by reminding them that God's promise to bless all the nations and establish justice in the world through his people will surely come to pass, even though they now be exiled, because it'll come to pass through the greater than Israel, the servant, the Messiah. And this servant has an explicit mission in this text. We noticed this in that theme in verses 1 to 4. Consider again this mission of the servant to bring forth justice. Behold my servant, whom I uphold my chosen and whom my soul delights, I've put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Three times we read of the servant's mission to establish justice in the world, to make what's wrong in the world right. And you notice at the end of verse 4, it mentions how the coastlands wait for his law. Because the practice of justice is nothing less than obedience to the laws of God. God's ways are the just ways. And in keeping his commands, we find true justice and true peace. And the reason God gave Israel laws, especially the Ten Commandments, was that they might learn to reflect his justice and righteousness in the world in walking in his ways. And in this obedience to God's just ethic, they would become a light for the nations and experience God's blessing and presence among them. And even still today, God's people are called to be a countercultural force in society, within their particular spheres of influence, a people who reflect a new mode of being, a new way of life, the way of Christ-like obedience and faithful love. And so Christ's justice is seen in this world as his people reflect his holy and just ways. The establishment of justice is nothing less than the establishment of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And so when we pray, as we prayed earlier, saying, your kingdom come, your will be done, we are asking that Christ's rule and reign would be increasingly manifested in this world, that his justice would be increasingly established among all the nations. It's interesting, again, where it says the coastlands wait for his law. Because, you know, the world truly is longing for justice. People are passionate about it. They just often don't know what it would look like or where it would truly come from. But truly, the nations are waiting for Christ's law. They don't know that that the fulfillment of all their dreams of a truly happy and loving world will only be fulfilled in obedience to Christ's commands. The coastlands wait for God's law. Their deepest longings will only be fulfilled when Christ's justice takes root. Um, This reminded me as a small example of um, 
when in your life you find things that you didn't know you were looking for but really were waiting for the whole time. Um, I can think of uh, when I was younger and I was seeking to pursue a good and godly wife. That's what I was looking for throughout my 20s. I wanted to find a good and godly wife, but I didn't at that time know who that person actually was. I was looking for this fulfillment of my heart's desires, and little did I know that God had Julie here in Michigan picked out for me, and once I met her and courted her and married her, I found that she was the one I was waiting for the whole time. She was the fulfillment of all those desires I had in my heart. And similarly, the coastlands are waiting for God's laws, and they keep searching for it, and they look for it in idolatrous places. They looked for it in self, in all these things of the world. But it's when you find Christ that you realize this is what I was longing for the whole time. This is what my heart was really looking for. St. Augustine was famous for saying that our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. But you could even say that the nations will be restless until they rest in Christ. God's mission is to bring justice, the way of Jesus, into the whole world. And this is going to come by way of the servant. And if this is coming by way of the servant, what kind of servant is it that could affect such a worldwide mission? And the servant's character was often different than the people of God of old expected. He was unlike the rulers of this world. Consider the servant's character. Look again at verse 1. Look at this with me. God says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. Right in verse 1, we see five characteristics of the servant. We see that he serves God, he's upheld by God, he's chosen and elected by God, he's delighted in by God, and he's anointed by God. And so we learn that Christ is God's uniquely commissioned, divinely appointed servant. And perhaps you might have noticed an image that would be evoked in your mind as you read that. You might think of Christ at his baptism. Look at Luke 3, 21. We're told that when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. When God says, You are my beloved Son, He's reflecting what the Father says to the Son in Isaiah 42. You are my servant in whom my soul delights. When we see the Spirit descend on Christ, we're reminded that He is God's anointed, the one whom God has put His Spirit on. Putting the Spirit on Christ is the anointing. This servant is anointed with the Spirit of God, and that's what the term Messiah means, the anointed one. Israel was waiting for this divinely appointed, anointed one. And the term Christ is the same word. It means the anointed one. Jesus is the servant, the anointed Messiah, the Christ. And it, when we consider how this servant acts in this world, it's important to recognize the way in which this divinely appointed and commissioned servant goes about this mission. We're told, look at verse 2, that he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. This isn't crying as in tears. This is crying out. 
And what this is telling us is that the servant would not be a self-promoter. He would not be a loud rioter or protester, a revolutionary or a rebel, at least externally. He's not seeking public power and influence. And this is the part of the verse that Matthew specifically zeroes in on as being fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew tells how Jesus heals a man with a withered hand, but then Jesus commands the crowds that saw this amazing miracle saying, don't say anything about me. Don't reveal me to the world. And Matthew says that fulfills this text that he would not cry aloud or lift up his voice in the streets. This is often called by theologians the messianic secret, that Christ sought to keep his identity hidden. And we, don't we live in a day of self-promotion, right? Everybody wants to be an influencer, to get views, to be out there. I've heard that even if someone wants to get any sort of book published, the first thing publishers ask is, how many Twitter followers do you have? They want to know, what's your reach? What's your influence? What's your platform? That wasn't the way of Christ. You can maybe imagine if he was around today and Christ performed a miracle that he would have told the people filming it, don't upload that. Don't post that on YouTube. My work is not about garnering this big public appearance to affect some great social change. Jesus knew that his work of the, establishing the kingdom wouldn't need popular support or public applause, but he knew that the way to the throne would be the way of the cross, that the way of glory would be the way of suffering and weakness. And our king didn't come with chariots and horses, but with hands of healing, with words of truth. And we're, we see this character in verse 3, where we're told that a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Jesus didn't think that the, that the ends justified the means. He wasn't wanting to roll into power, trampling anyone in his wake. But we see all throughout his earthly ministry that Christ had particular compassion for the marginalized, the weak, the sick, the distressed, for the sinners and the outsiders. And he spurned trying to get in with the religious elites or the political movers and shakers. And even still today, Christ maintains this compassionate and this merciful character towards us. His heart is for sinners and sufferers, for those who know they have need of a physician. And if you today are here and you feel weak in faith, burdened by sins, beset with sorrows, know that Christ's heart is to restore, to refresh, to renew you, not to break you, not to snuff you out, but to uphold you with his righteous right hand. Rather, remember Peter when we're told Satan asked to sift him like wheat. Christ said, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Christ isn't trying to sift you like wheat. Satan is. And Christ, as your divine intercessor, if you've put your faith in him, he prays for you that your faith would not fail. This servant, he's meek and mild. And yet, at the same time, look at verse 4, we're told that he will not grow faint or be discouraged. That is, he will be steadfast, courageous, and resolute in his purposes, accomplishing God's mission. And so was Jesus. His will was to accomplish his Father's work, no matter the pain, no matter the cost. He set his face like flint. He walked headlong into suffering, into betrayal, into abuse, and even death on a cross all for the sake of this mission given him by 
the Father, the salvation of the elect of God. And so you see here the commitment of the servant's passionate love for his people, for sinners like you and me. And so we want to take this all and behold the servant, behold his kindness, behold his compassion and his meekness and his love. Seeing that this kingdom of justice will be established not in strength, but in weakness. Not in force, but in gentleness. Not in self-will, but in submission to God's will. This is the Christ that we adore. And we've seen the servant, he subverts these normal means of establishing a kingdom. He takes the gentle and lowly road. And yet, this mission is so great, we might think, how on earth will such a vast mission be accomplished by such weak and feeble means? Well, and that's where we consider the servant's support, the promise of divine aid from his heavenly Father. Take a look at verse 5. We're told, Thus says the Lord, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. You can imagine almost the people of Israel hearing these promises of the justice the servant will bring and thinking, this is impossible. But all the more to enforce the truth of his promise, God reminds Israel that he is the all-powerful creator God. He is the one that has made all things. As if to remind them, surely this is not too great a thing for me to do. But interestingly, in verse 6, the Lord turns and he speaks directly to the servant. Here we see an interesting circumstance where we see the father speaking directly to the son. As if to remind him of these promises. He reminds him of the divine name. He says, I am the Lord. That is, I am Yahweh. He reminds the servant of his divine call, saying, I have called you in righteousness, and reminds him of the divine support. I will take you by the hand and keep you. Now, Jesus, in his earthly life, he read this passage. And, you, and we know that Jesus, in his human nature, he had struggles and trials. He had weaknesses and needs. And what an encouragement for Christ in his human nature to hear an encouraging word directly from his heavenly Father, saying, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. And if Christ was given to hear this encouraging word from God, how much more do we need to hold on to God's promises and to call on him for divine aid. Jesus trusted God's promises. Jesus asked the Father for help, and so much more should we. Jesus is the servant, come to establish justice in this world, coming in gentleness and lowliness with the support of God. But the biggest question, the one Israel didn't really know, is exactly how this would happen. How would this work actually come about? Well, verses 6 and 7 reveal how this lowly servant will accomplish this expansive mission. God tells him at the end of verse 6, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. That is, this servant 
will be a covenant mediator. When he says, I will give you to be a covenant, this is a shorthand way of talking about Christ as the mediator of a covenant. The covenant person, the covenant mediator, is in a sense the go-between between two far-off parties, one that mediates their relationship. Now, boys and girls, uh, you might hear words like mediator in church, and you think that's big and complicated, and I'm not sure what that means. Well, this, perhaps this um, illustration might help us a little bit. It's not perfect, but a mediator brings two faraway things close together. And if you wanted to talk to someone who is far away, I have family in a different country back in Canada, and yet through a satellite, my image and voice can go to the satellite and bounce off that satellite to my family. And it can seem, though we're hundreds of miles away, that we're in the very same room, talking to each other, seeing each other. And this closeness, this relationship that we can have, is coming by the mediating satellite. The satellite is mediating that relationship. And so it is with God. We know that the distance between God and us is so far that we could never get to him on our own. But through Christ, he brings God and us so near. Through him, we can have a relationship with God that is close. We sang of his friendship earlier. And when we're talking about Jesus as the mediator of the covenant, we're saying that he is the one that holds us in close relationship with God. God will give the servant to be the mediator of the covenant. And this mediator is the light for the nations. He's a light because the faraway nations, the nations other than Israel that never knew of the true God, now can be brought close to God, can hear of him, and come to him in Jesus. And we saw at the beginning of this message, we remembered that justice can only truly be established when idolatry is dealt with. And therefore, the great work of this covenant mediator, before establishing this world of justice and dealing with injustice without, he works to deal with our unrighteousness within. Turn your eyes to verse 7. We're told that he will be given to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Now, these are metaphorical, symbolic images, images that are used throughout Scripture to talk about a restored relationship with God. When we're told that the servant will open the eyes of the blind, we understand that spiritually this means the eyes of the heart being opened to know God through Christ. In Acts 26, 17, God tells Paul that I am sending you to open the eyes of the Gentiles so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins. And the work of the mediator was the work, is the work of opening blind eyes, of bringing into view a God once unknown, a God once far off and undisclosed, revealing God up close, as a video monitor might reveal someone far away, right before your very eyes. But this is a seeing of the heart. It's the seeing of faith. The mediator opens the eyes of the blind, but also brings out prisoners from the dungeon. This release from prison 
prison is symbolic of deliverance and redemption from our slavery to the world, the flesh, and the devil, from slavery to sin. And in this way, we see that the mediator is a savior, a deliverer, a redeemer. We're told in Colossians 1.13 that Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so freedom from this bondage means not only now do people see God as the one true and living God, but are actually now given a new power and ability in their hearts to actually follow him, to obey his commands, and pursue his righteousness. And this is the way in which God, through the mediator, deals with our heart idolatry. Through the mediator, he opens our eyes to see God that we might know that all other idols are vain hopes of salvation. Through the mediator, our bound hearts are delivered to serve God alone and not to serve idols. And all this work of the servant is meant for one grand result, the praises of God. That's what God says in verse 8. He concludes, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. This whole idea, this whole text is bracketed in this idea of idolatry. In chapter 41, Isaiah is rebuking the nations for the vanity and uselessness of idols. God tells of this transformative work in the servant and reminds them that his glory is to be given to no other, nor his praise to carved idols. Right there, we're told, this is all about the eradication of idolatry that God alone may be worshipped and served. And so the work of the servant results not only in the suppression of false worship, but the establishment of true worship. For God alone deserves highest praises, highest honor, highest glory and obedience, and no created thing can usurp his right. And so the servant seeks to see God exalted above all. This is God's will, and it will be accomplished on the earth. And God assures us of that promise in verse 9, saying, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. What God is saying here to Israel at that time, he's saying, everything I told you has happened. I told you you would go into exile if you disobeyed me, and so you have. But I'm telling you this new thing. And just as surely as that came to pass, this servant and his work will come to pass as well. And we know it did come to pass. We know that this work of the servant was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the divine servant who didn't raise his voice in the streets, who didn't break a bruised reed, who was God's beloved and anointed, who lived and died and rose again that he might be the mediator of a new covenant, who ascended and sent his spirit into this world to establish the kingdom of justice where it is growing everywhere and bearing fruit. And wherever the gospel of God has gone, blind eyes have been opened, bound hearts have been set free. And such has happened to you and to me. We've been recipients of this great work. And many people have turned from idols to serve the one true and living God. Just look at what God has done for us in Christ in opening our eyes to see that God is the true God 
in delivering us from the slavery of the vanity and futility of serving idolatrous desires, to be made a people who are actually truly just and righteous in God's sight because of Christ, a people called to seek first his kingdom and righteousness. And the Lord has been faithful to this promise. However, we must recognize that amazing as this promise is, it has not yet been truly and fully fulfilled in this world. Christ's kingdom of justice has been established. His kingdom is growing. But we know that the wicked will continue in their wickedness and that Christ's kingdom of justice will not be fully and finally and eternally here until he comes again to bring about his perfect justice, to punish the wicked and to restore a new world in which righteousness dwells. And so we look forward. The justice we see now is a small taste of that justice we hope for hereafter, where there will be nothing wrong, where everything that's wrong with this world will be made right. And that too will be because of the work of the servant, God's anointed one, the Messiah, our deliverer and redeemer. He's preparing a place for us, a world where righteousness dwells, where everything wrong will be made right and how we ought to look forward to that day, the full fulfillment of this servant's song. But for now, we continue to behold Christ. We look at that servant of God. We praise him for his character, his gentleness and lowliness, his compassion and kindness, his steadfast, faithful love. We praise him for his mighty work of mediation, redemption, his death and resurrection, Because this servant was given as a covenant mediator for us to deliver us, to open our eyes. And so how could you not trust in him, love him, and walk in his ways? Follow after him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you've given so much for us. We ask that you would continually open our eyes to truly see Christ as the treasure in the field that's worth giving up everything to find. You would help us to truly see him as that pearl of great price, the fairest of 10,000, the chief among the sons of men, that we would find him to be altogether lovely, that we would evermore, all our days, praise you for your gracious work in sending Christ to bring us into a restored relationship with our God with our creator. We thank you for Christ, who by the Spirit breaks our chains of idolatry and frees us to know you and to live in your ways. We ask that his kingdom would come in this world, that the divine servant would continue his work of mediation to be a light to the nations, that the nations would become Christ's disciples. Lord, help us to reflect his character. Help us to reflect his compassion, to deal gently and compassionately with those who are weak, to cling to your promises, remembering that you guide us and keep us, and to stay on the mission you have for us of being part of Christ's kingdom society, walking in obedience to him. We need the help of your spirit in all things. In all things, we need forgiveness for our sins, and we trust that you do forgive us for Jesus' sake and equip us with everything good to do his will, even as you work in us that which is pleasing in his sight forever. And we pray all these things 
in our great mediator, Jesus Christ's name. Amen.